Me is Ami Ose Frimpong. I come to you live every Thursday in the afternoon. Today we're doing a special show because I have a special guest, one of my favorite people. And I think she's going to quickly be one of yours. And uh, her name is Crystal Ball. She hosts Breaking Points with her co-host Sagar and Jetty. And they have a show that comes out every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And you're going to listen to her talk and you're going to want to uh, see more of her. So you should see her show, Breaking Points. Also, she has a podcast, Crystal Kyle and Friends. And they talk about politics and just how to think about culture in the day. And I'm going to have a talk and we're going to we're going to get right to it. You probably know her more than you know me if you're watching. So you should just support both of us and let us get going. Crystal, how you doing? I'm good, Irene. Always lovely to chat with you, although I'm a little nervous. Tables have you, turned you should on be. me. Um, yeah, you should be. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, you know, especially now that I control the room. So people tell you, they say, I mean, when you go on breaking points, when you go on these shows, you have to pretend that you've already been there. You, you try to get too much in. And I say, that's a way to do life, you know, act like you've been there before. But I like to go at things in those situations where, like, I act like I'm never coming back again. <laughs> Especially <laughs> in a world with YouTube and um, replays. I try to get it all out because, I don't know, I might stroke out or, like, something might happen to me. Or, like, I just act, I'm one of these guys until I get, like, a contract with, like, a six-episode six, six guarantee. I act like I'm never going back. And that's well, just you how know, I, I yeah. we've talked I, publicly about how, you know, when we were thinking about leaving the hill, you were a part of that calculus because it was like, you know, people like Irony, who is a truly free man, he's going to say whatever the heck he thinks is the truth and, you know, what the people need to hear. And sometimes that makes folks uncomfortable. And we experienced that at the Hill, uh, where we had some heated debates behind the scenes about whether your segments were going to run and where they were going to run and when they were going to run and all of that. And, you know, we didn't want that because I think you and I don't always agree on everything, but I, you always give me a lot to chew on, a lot to think about. And I know you have deepened me in my thinking about the world and the country and politics is true. You know that. Um, and certainly inspired me and in some of my commentary you were mentioned in my monologue just today. So uh, with some commentary on Barack Obama. Um, so anyway, when we were thinking about going independent, you know, thinking about you and being able to host you and your your fullness and all of your freedom, that was something that we definitely wanted to make sure we were able to do. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean, one segment I did on breaking points, which I think like would have been very, very important for the world, was right after John Lewis passed, and I said, and Bill Clinton said, "Thank goodness we had John Lewis because John Lewis saved us from Stokely Carmichael." And all I suggested oh was gosh. that, Bill, yeah, I suggested that Bill Clinton was actually speaking what Bill Clinton thought. Like John Lewis, he when he, when Bill Clinton thinks of John Lewis, he thought of the guy who saved us from the black people we don't want to deal with, and because, right. and I said this. I said this on the right. uh, on the show that like John Lewis found a way to sell the civil rights movement to company Democrats like Clinton. And in order to sell the civil rights movement, you have to take ownership of it. So he kind of assumed ownership of a movement that wasn't necessarily his and then sold it for the low, low price of lots of commemorative uh, um, uh, ceremonies and decorations. And I think that's a valid take for the people who know the history of John Lewis's politics, especially his like kind of beef with Julian Bond. And, and he was, John Lewis is the black guy that Bill Clinton needed 
to handle black guys like me. And I said that, and I think that's a, a, a reasonable take on John Lewis from a thought guy who's actually thought through what it means. And it turns out that uh, that segment was killed. I think Clinton's comments about Stokely Carmichael were so incredibly revealing. And if you can't have that conversation and, you know, talk about the uh, allyship between sort of, you know, uh, self-appointed black leaders and white leaders and keepers of the establishment, then you're going to be confused about some of the things that we see happening in American politics. You're going to be confused about how we end up with Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris as vice president. You're going to be confused about how you end up with potentially Michelle Childs, this sort of like anti-civil rights union busting uh, judge on the Supreme Court. And so, look, I get it. The man had just died and people get uncomfortable about, you know, doing anything other than lionize someone who's just passed. But um, and I even feel, you know, uncomfortable about that as well. But when I think about it intellectually in terms of people who have been in public life and had a profound impact impact on public life, you have to be accurate. Uh, at the time of their passing, because that's going to be kind of the last word on who this person was and what their role was in American society. So, you know, that's that's the time when you kind of have the last shot to try to set the record straight as best you can from wherever you sit. So that was my view. Yeah. And Bill Clinton opened the door with that. He wanted the last word. And I said, well, OK, well, let's deal with that. Bill Clinton's defining John role, John Lewis's role in American society against Stokely Carmichael, which isn't particularly great for black people. So um, so now let's talk about why you're not so why you're not basic. That's a good question, because you mass produce guys like me, <laughs> black guys like me. What will happen is they'll just make jails bigger. And like, that's not going to be that big of a problem. <laughs> but if you mass produce white women like yourself, like we get a different, we get a whole different politics. So I have a whole segment of questions about why, why is Crystal not basic? And how do we mass produce quick, um, uh, more crystal balls? And so the first question I want to ask you is like, you know, as a, as a young black man, I realized that there's a lot at stake in me being able to identify white people I can trust. And one, um, <laughs> one, one like little kind of rule of thumb I, I kind of came up with in college is I'm a little slow to trust people who didn't either play sports or play a classical instrument well. If you didn't play sports or you didn't oh, play a classical instrument well, I worried that uh, I don't know what would happen if you could if you could take hard things if you could if you could do hard things. Now you were a very mm. good swimmer, and do you think that formed you into the kind of person who could talk to me? That's very interesting. Um, I never thought of it that way. I mean, there's no doubt. So I was a, you know, swimming was a huge part of my life up through, you know, the middle of college. I swam in college. It was, you know, this was a big part of my identity and definitely part of my formation as a human being because I was not a political person until college-ish. The Iraq war was incredibly, you know, motivating and mobilizing for me, as I think it was for a lot of people of my age and generation. That was kind of my first uh, my first step towards any kind of a radicalization, even, you know, becoming super engaged in politics at all. But in terms of my formation as a person, I mean, swimming was very central and swimming is also the kind of sport that, you know, it's all about just how much 
pain can you put yourself through? <laughs> There's not a lot of strategy. It's just like, how much can you stand the pain on a day-to-day, -day you know, uh, at practice? Um, what kind of psychological state do you need to get yourself into? Endure that every single day, six days a week, sometimes multiple times a day. And then how do you bring that to competition? So, yeah, I guess, you know, anyone who's, had that kind of determination been willing to sort of like, you know, make themselves suffer for indeterminate goals. I guess that does sort of strengthen you. <laughs> no, that, that's actually really good because there are other <laughs> aspects in your life where you would consider yourself a people pleaser. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was absolutely like teacher's pet. Um, still am like my first instinct is always to make the people around me feel comfortable. You know, that's always my, that's my instinct all the time. And I think part of that is like, you know, I do think that's partly cultural in terms of the way that girls are raised in, in this country, like the way the things you're rewarded for are like tend to be being the good girl and making people feel happy and making being the good hostess, like those types of skills I do think are rewarded. But I also just think that's kind of my innate nature and something that I do have to to fight against. I was I was a straight A student. I wasn't pushing back. I knew how to make my teachers happy. I was, you know, following following the rules kind of a girl all through growing up and and still have that in me for sure. Yeah, but when you I mean when but when you put on the suit and you're about to like you need to go in there with the attitude, I'm gonna eat these people's lunch. Like it there isn't like, well, I hope I don't make my you know, the the lady, the girl in the in the lane next to me feel bad at the end of this race. Like that doesn't Yeah, true. Like, so like, there's kind of a, you had to put, like, you, you had to be, a, you had to be a shark. Like there is no, like, there is no um, casual way to be a state champ. <laughs> like, like, you, there is no, like, you don't, you don't just say like, well, I just kind of, you know, tried to do it for myself and make myself feel good. Um, you know, I just did it because I enjoyed it. No, like in order to be a champ, you had to go through practices that you did not enjoy. Like it wasn't about yes. making other people feel nice. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is definitely the case. I mean, I do feel like, I think this is common for most people, but I do feel like I have a lot of different parts of myself that are kind of like at odds with each other. And, um, you know, there's a, an internal tug of war all the time between that person who wants to do the right thing and, and cares about it and wants to be fierce in the way that, you know, I was competing in the pool and the person who just wants everybody to kind of get along, you know? And I, I do think I, if I were to take it a, a step even further back, my parents are very, very different. Um, wow. Mom is total extrovert. She's very type A. She's very take charge. My dad's a scientist. He's very introverted, not shy, but just very introverted. And I got sort of like, one of my sisters is just like my mom. The other sister is just like my dad. And I kind of got the like the mix. So I do sometimes feel that internal tug of war myself. But I think, I mean, I think that's common that a lot of people have different parts of themselves that come out at different times and are kind of at, at odds and at war with one another. Okay. All right. Well, we're trying, like I said, we're trying to figure out like, that, why? yeah, no, that's a, like, so it really, it brought out different aspects of you, both the, 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 yeah, no, it brought out the fierceness and the, the people pleasing aspect of you. And, you know, that's, I think what the world needs. And so another um, kind of story I told myself about how to quickly judge people who I could trust was I was always a, a little bit 
worried to trust people who had never been dumped, never been fired, and never been arrested. So think back in your life and think about the times either you've been dumped, <laughs> fired, or arrested, and uh, ask yourself, has that made you the quality of person who ends up in this chat right now? Oops. Yeah. Ah. yeah. No, it's okay. Um, These are my people. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think getting canceled at MSNBC was for me a very uh, brutal, informative experience. Because again, you have to think like, you know, up to that point, I, I was sort of a rule follower and I did the things I was supposed to do and it mostly worked out. You know, like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Like, I do the thing I'm supposed to do, and then I, you know, it works out. And I get to do, you know, what I want to do, and I get to kind of like uh, ascend the ranks, all those things. And then I do everything I'm supposed to do, and I get fired. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> it didn't go how it was supposed to go. And it was, it that was, um, it really was a very difficult experience for me. And I felt like, uh, you know, I felt a real like loss of, of self and identity and sort of the world didn't make sense. And I moved to Kentucky for a while and kind of took a step back from um, working at all, certainly working in media it took me several years to venture back into a media role. And um, that time that was kind of in the wilderness was definitely when my current political orientation starts to solidify because I'm no longer able to see the media the way that I did. I'm no longer able to see the Democratic Party the way that I did. And there's, you know, I think a more accurate view of the world and the way things really work that starts to to mature in me. I also but, but, think, go ahead. Yeah, for the record, for the people at home, Crystal wasn't fired for doing blow in the MSNBC bathroom. No, she was fired because she suggested that maybe Hillary, it's possible, this is 2015, that it's possible that Hillary Clinton might not be the perfect Democratic candidate for this moment. And that if she were, <laughs> if Hillary, if, and she, this is, this is this like she's paid to do political analysis and Crystal has a temerity to say, you know, if Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee, I don't know if she's gonna win against Trump and like, it's gonna be a hard argument to make. And like the Trump people are going to have some like very reasonable criticisms of her. And I don't know if she's the right, she's just, she might not be the right candidate for the moment. Well, so this was says even this before, in 2015. Yeah. This was actually even before Trump, this was in 2014. 2014, When she yeah. was just starting to think about it. So this was before we even knew Trump was gonna be a thing. And, um, and listen, I mean, I, I want to be clear, like there was a whole restructuring at MSNBC. I was one of a bunch of people who were fired at that time. But there's no doubt that my commentary, which turned out to be completely accurate, and I have to say <laughs> probably one of the more helpful things that anyone offered at MSNBC during that time to help understand the world and the things as they unfolded, that was certainly not rewarded. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> And I've, I've told this story before, but I think it's really important to understand the way that these organizations work. I was never told you can't say these things. I was never told like you got to lay off Hillary. But I was told that if I was going to do any commentary about Hillary moving forward, it would have to be approved directly by the president of the network. And 
you know, of course, being the good girl rule follower, like this really puts me in a bind. I'm like, oh my God, you know, like I'm going to have to turn my paper in to be checked by the president <laughs> of the network before I say anything. And so, of course, it's not that I never said anything again, but of course it had a, a, a little bit of a chilling impact. It definitely gets inside your head. So yeah, that, uh, that sort of commentary was not really rewarded. And then you see the people who are rewarded and who are elevated. You see, you know, Stephen Hayes, who wrote a book about how uh, the, the connections between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein and helps make the case for war, how he just landed a new gig. You see Jonah Goldberg landed a new gig at CNN, who also helped make the case for the Iraq war. Like the people who are wrong in the correct ways are the <laughs> ones who are the most highly paid and the most rewarded. So part of me getting fired was grappling with all of that and really starting to like see the mask off for how the media works and how the the democratic party institutions like how the elites in the party protect themselves and also probably most critically how they completely lost support with you know working class americans writ large how they don't even they're not even interested in regaining it they're just interested in sort of like you know their own protection racket and making excuses for why they can never deliver anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes all in the form of a firing, right? Because you were, you're not only weren't wrong in the right way, you were right. You were actually took in the your wrong job way. Too, yeah. You're right. The wrong, you took your job too <laughs> You did your job too well. You're like, well, I looked at it. I thought I talked to the people and then I listened to Hillary Clinton and I talked to the people and this is 2014. And, maybe she's not the best candidate for 2016. And yeah. that's and what I'm gets like, you spent. Right. And as the A student, I'm like, I, I did. I thought that was the assignment. That wasn't the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to do my job. Yeah. So <laughs> this is what, so you're not right in the right way. Um, you're right in a way that might be good for America to know and for like even good Democrats to know, because maybe good Democrats wanted to know in 2014 that maybe Hillary Clinton isn't the candidate for the moment. And these are the reasons why. So yeah. um, that could have been a useful piece of information. I feel like that could have prevented a lot of a lot of bad things that followed. Yeah. Yeah. And instead you were punished for it. So like, what does that mean? And so that was helpful in radicalizing you. Good. So you also ran for Congress. And did not win, but you ran. Is that yeah. a useful um, experience? Because a lot of people stigmatize losers, people who get fired, people who get arrested, people. But I think those are the best people um, <laughs> for like a lot of different reasons. And not just because I'm one in many different ways, but um, I, I do think that more people need to, I don't know, run and lose at something that matters and 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 figure out what that means and understand like why they lost because there are good reasons to lose and there are bad reasons to lose just like there are good reasons to win and bad reasons to win but unless you actually like work that out unless we think about what losing campaigns mean in their variegated forms then like we're not really serious about winning and win. so what did you learn through the process of running and right running? and so that there were a couple of things that i learned some of them were um you know depressing and some of them were actually kind of good so I ran in 2010. It's the Tea Party wave. This is before I am end up at MSNBC, right? And um, I ran in a what is still a conservative district in Virginia where I live. Um, it's still represented by the same dude that I lost to. 
And there were a couple of learnings there because first of all, I was 28 uh, at the time and I ran against uh, a retired army colonel in the primary, in the democratic primary. And this guy really thought he had the thing locked up. He had been working towards this run for a while, had been lining up his donations, he'd been lining up his party support. Here I am, this like young woman with a little kid and a weird name, and I was hard for him to take serious. And I think also coming from a military background, he was used to people doing what he told them to do. And also that if people said they were going to do something, they actually did it, which Uh... if you have ever done anything in politics, you know, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) If 10 people tell you they're going to show up to the event, maybe one is going to. Um, And so there was uh, actual, actually a lot of power that came with being underestimated in that circumstance because I, you know, caught him off guard. He didn't do the work. I did. And, um, and ultimately, you know, he had to drop out of the race before it was even over because I had such a lead ahead of him. So that was kind of like, oh, this, you know, grassroots politics, it really works. And I'm out there and I, they can't, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the people and this guy was taking it for granted and not with old men with the new, but then the general election comes along and the big media, there's a couple things that happen. A lot of people know this story about me. So the way that I burst onto the national scene is because these pictures of me post-college are leaked that are sort of like, you know, sexually suggestive. I'm with the man who ended up being my, uh, my husband, my first husband. Um, and I'm of age. There's really viewed from the modern context. There's literally nothing scandalous about these pictures, but they're sexual. And so they get leaked. This becomes this silly national story for a minute. Um, I go out on these cable news shows to defend myself and say, this is a bunch of bullshit. Nobody cares about this. Um, and that, ultimately, which was very, now I can be casual about it. At the time, it was very hard to deal with because again, I'm the good girl, I'm the A student, I feel like I'm embarrassed, these people who took a risk on me and I'm so humiliated and all of this. But that thing which was meant to destroy me because I responded in a way that actually spoke more accurately to what people cared about helped to to make people more interested in me. I, I still lost the race, but I actually performed, we did some polling better than I would have if the photos had not come out. And then it also was the thing that gave me an opportunity to go on to Fox News and MSNBC and CNN. And that's how I end up with the media platform, with the show at MSNBC and the media career. Otherwise, none of that would have happened. Right. So one and of I the learnings- for the, people, for the yeah. people at home, I wanna help them understand. You have to understand when Rush Limbaugh's, you know, making crude jokes about you because like you're at a Halloween party, like having fun and they expect. And so when you're doing the media circuit to defend yourself, the media people in their mind expect you to go on and demure. They expect you to say, like, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. And instead yeah. of doing that, and I think this is why you got the job, you went into, yeah, I was at a party. Yeah, I was having a good time. It was hilarious. And I'm running to like make sure people have clean water. So so the, the idea that you went on and didn't demure and didn't say like, well, I made a mistake, I apologize. But you were you were thinking like, I yes, I was at a party. I get to be at a party. I get to be young. 
I get to be attractive. Yeah. I get to be at a party. I get to goof around with the guy I'm going to marry. And I also get to be a congressional candidate. Uh, candidate. And if you have a problem with yeah. that, like that's your problem. So like I, the fact that you went in, I think made you interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. And I wish I was as unapologetic as you're framing it. I was still sort of like, ah, it wasn't great, but you know, this isn't what people care about. And this is actually what people hate about politics is that you're going to try to personally destroy someone. And also I will say, um, started my real sort of, uh, interest in love affair with the, the labor movement because those folks were the first to be like, this is a bunch of bullshit. And I actually like you more. <laughs> There were unions that donated more to me oh. because this had happened. I mean, so they really had my back. And it showed you, you know, in these times, one of the things that you learn anytime you go through something that's sort of like publicly humiliating or difficult or embarrassing like this, you really find out who has your back in a, a meaningful way. And they did. Um, the other thing from actually running for Congress and losing is you come to realize very quickly how little the individual campaign and candidate actually matter. So all of the, you know, my race had a lot of things go. You had the, you know, the Tea Party wave and you had the photos and that ends up being this big thing. But ultimately what it really came down to is the way that the lines of the district were drawn. And there's probably i mean maybe there's somebody out there who could overcome that but any sort of whether you're a bad candidate or a good candidate or an extraordinary candidate a candidate who goes viral for some you know sexy pictures you took when you were 22 years years old or somebody who never gets noticed the outcome was predetermined and i know that's i guess it's so obvious to say now but i genuinely didn't know that going in i really thought i mean i was so idealistic as to think like we have the right message and we run the right campaign and we get the right people in and I work my tail off 20 hours a day like these obstacles are surmountable and they're just not uh, especially at the house level because yeah it's just it's so baked into the way the districts are drawn and then to the extent that you've got you know now I think there's like 25 or 30 districts that are actually swing districts in the entire country that even have a sh shot at changing hands and then that all just comes down to what's the national mood? You know, is it a Tea Party wave year? Is it a fuck Joe Biden year? Is it a fuck Donald Trump year? And that really doesn't come down to you as a candidate either. So it made me realize how much primaries matter because that's where you determine who's gonna be slotted into that role to, you know, to face whatever the wins and the fates are of that year. Um, and it also made me realize how much those sort of larger structural forces things like um things like corruption things like the party system like those those bigger forces um are the things to really focus on and, and go after because they determine what the playing field is and then we're just all little like chess pieces that they're kind of moving around right so you know i was thinking about this in terms of pelosi's uh recent walk back on her stock trading um uh, quote, if you don't know, back in December, uh, Nancy Pelosi said, like, I am a congressperson. Congress people should be allowed to trade individually on stocks. It's not that big of a deal. It's part of being uh, it's a free market society. I'm a member of the free market society. 
and uh, I should be able to do that. The only reason she was she was asked that question in a press conference, which she doesn't often give, and she was asked that question and pressed on it, and she gave her answer, and she was kind of casual about it, assuming it wouldn't be um, that big of a deal. Now, it turns out that while America might not be made of the most like rigorous and like intellectually sophisticated citizenry in the world, we understand rigging and betting. Like I remember as a young boy watching <laughs> Pete Rose get pinched for betting on baseball games. And if you don't know, um, baseball's got rules, but like the football league has the biggest, like the most expansive rule. They can't bet on anything. Football players cannot bet on NCAA. They can't bet on amateur sports. They can't bet on Olympic figure skating because the idea is that athletes talk to each other and they might exchange secrets. So this idea that a congressperson doesn't understand that if you govern and control the market, you create the market, you can't also participate in it. Um, it turns out that that was new for her, but actually Americans understood <laughs> that this, this is a problem. That like, it's just because like, this is a free market society mean, doesn't mean that the people who govern and control and regulate the market get to participate um, because we need them to govern and control and regulate the market so that other participants can participate. So this is one of those deals where it's not that Nancy Pelosi had an untenable position. Um, although I, I think it's ultimately untenable. It's that the reason she gave for it showed her own ignorance about what it even means to be a congressperson. Right. Mm. So we need to, what does it take to create more of those moments? Right. Because if you can just say your position, that's not enough. We needed Pelosi casually saying, well, I'm just a participant in the free market society. And that's what ended up doing her in. Okay. Yeah. And so like the question well, is, like, why haven't we had those moments? And like, what are the barriers to getting to those moments? That's a deep question. I mean, I think it's worth tracking how we even got to the place of Nancy Pelosi getting asked that question that precipitates that response. Because I think if these folks were asked the right questions more often, you'd be more likely for them to sort of expose themselves in a way that is useful for the American public. And so this started as a real grassroots phenomenon. We've given a lot of credit to Unusual Whales, which has a Twitter account that just took the information that was publicly available of who was trading what and when and compiled it in a way that was useful and understandable to people. So you started to see really clearly like, oh, here's literally the list of all these members, how much they're trading, how much they're beating the market by, how much they're beating the ghouls on Wall Street who do this for a living, like how much they're beating them by. And we know that these are not like brilliant genius people <laughs> who just happen to be like, have this all wired and figured out. No, they've got it wired and figured out because they're getting the answers to the test before the test happens. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is the most obvious thing that it's, it's very easily understood because yeah, we do understand sort of betting and cheating and rigging and can see it very clearly and certainly don't believe that these people have our best interest at heart. So Unusual Whale starts doing this reporting. It starts getting a lot of steam, um, both with, you know, lefties like us and the, the right wing picks up on it because it's like, oh, this is an attack on Pelosi. So it gets this bipartisan energy behind it. This spurs uh, some mainstream reporters to say, 
hey, there might be some clicks for us here if we do some of this research as well. Like this might help us in terms of like getting more eyeballs or more traffic to our site. And so Insider, to their credit, does an extraordinary deep dive into, into the same data, exposes a number of relationships. You know, you've got hypocrisy of Dems who claim to be environmentalists who are uh, profiting off of fossil fuel. You've got hypocrisy of Republicans who claim to be big tech critics who are profiting off of Facebook and Google and all of these other companies. You have big trades that are being made right around the pandemic from companies that, oh, their stock just happened to go up when we passed the relief bill and these sorts of things. And so it was that mainstream reporting that then leads a mainstream journalist to ask Pelosi the question. So that trajectory is what gets us there because I think they would reveal themselves much more often if they were routinely forced to answer these kinds of questions, which she answered very flippantly. She had no idea this would be a problem for her. She answered it very flippantly. Yeah, like she actually, she thought it wouldn't wouldn't be that big of an issue. And that's what's important because it tells us about her. And let's be honest, if we want to give a charitable um, impression of the office, we helped her learn what it meant to be a congressperson in a way that 30 mm. years in that chair hadn't. Right? Like she honestly yeah. didn't think that there would be a problem because yeah. well, she's never been. It, and it speaks also to how disconnected they are, right? I mean, she's an extraordinarily wealthy woman. She lives in a wealthy enclave. She doesn't, as you point out, frequently point out, she doesn't subject herself to public debates. Um, so in her social circle, that comment would have made lots of sense. It wouldn't have raised a single eyebrow. And the people that, you know, members of Congress do spend a lot of time talking to people, but mostly those people are their donors. <laughs> so especially if you're a Pelosi type of politician. I mean, the, one thing that's that's heartening uh, is that there are new sort of centers of power and new ways to raise the funds that it takes to run for office. Um, you know, grassroots fundraising is a relatively new model, but most of these people are not raising huge grassroots dollars, they still have to do it the old fashioned way. They're still talking to, you know, rich people that they see themselves as brethren with. And that's where they're in. That's where they're getting their sort of view of the world from. So for her offering that answer of like, yeah, it's a free market, I'm going to participate in it. Oh, well, that's, that's exactly what her social set would have thought and would have been fine with her saying you see lots of comments out. Did you see Dan Crenshaw saying like, we have to um, we have to be able to trade stocks while we're in Congress to be able to better ourselves while we're in office. That was the word he hit the language he used. Better ourselves, Tommy Tuber Tuberville, Tuberville. I don't never remember how to say that man's last name. Senator from Alabama, very much echoing those comments, saying basically like no one's going to run for office if they can't get rich off of the position. Which also, it's not like they're poorly paid. They make a good salary as members of Congress but they just see themselves as they should be part of the people that they're raising money from. That's who they see themselves as akin to. And this is the only way for them to better themselves into that position where they think that they, they belong. And I think it's very important that Tuberville and Crenshaw get those opinions out there <laughs> for the people. Yes. 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 So, right. so we can have and the that's, debate that's about what how. Just, they had these opinions the whole time. Just no one had asked them. No one had asked them. <laughs> no yeah. So we need like, so I just, my idea is that, all right, so I have a theory that we have a structure that's rational enough 
to internally generate challenges. You'll always have a Cassandra or Bernie or Marianne Williamson, like you'll all to internally generate challenges, but it's also distorted enough as part of its metabolism to also put them down. So the question is, how do you frustrate the internal abortive mechanisms, right? Because so right now, this uh, bill about the senators individually trading stock is going to get sent to a committee where we'll probably be killed. And that's going to be the problem. So what is it about the pro like, let's work kind of think through where good candidates get aborted, where good bills, where good ideas that are generated internally through like thoughtful critiques of the system get 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 killed. Because I, I do worry that we're caught in a cycle where yeah. part of what the US is is rational enough to generate challenges and also distorted enough to predictably kill these same challenges. And frustrating that cycle is like part of our job. Do you have the answer, Army? Because I'm not sure that I do. Because I see I see where it happens. I see all the mechanisms that are used. You can see it with um the squad members who were elected and um you know, I was just reading, I don't know if you read this new interview with um, AOC, who I, I genuinely don't mean to pick on and who mm. I think is a genuinely like someone who genuinely cares about the things that she talks about. But you can't help but notice the contrast between her coming into office and protesting outside of Nancy Pelosi's office with the Sunrise Movement kids and effectively putting Green New Deal on the agenda and, you know, being involved right away and drafting the legislation and forcing the hand of the Democratic Party to she gets asked in this New Yorker, I think it was a New Yorker interview um, about Pelosi as speaker, and she won't say a word of criticism. She will not say a word of criticism. So that's weird to me for a few reasons, right? So she comes out, um, she protests in front of Pelosi's office, pretty much gets her way in a lot of ways. I mean, that's when I like, you know, started donating yeah. to her. And like, and mm -hmm. so in some ways, the incentives were in her favor. Right. And yet she still got brought into the fold. So right. And like, this is someone know. who's, yeah, this happened? is someone who's already gotten through all of those other uh, attempts to, to frustrate her, right? Like, so right. she beats Joe Crowley, who was number three in house leadership. And partly it was the thing that I witnessed when I ran in the primary, which was they just didn't take her seriously. And so she kind of sneaks through, you know, um, and then when she's there, I can't say for sure, but I think that there's a very human, um, you know, I think it's a very human instinct to feel like, okay, now I'm in this group of people. These are my people. What are these people doing? What are they telling? I, I'm new to this. What do the people who are leaders here say this is all about and tell me that this job ultimately is? And you see some signs of this, you know, back when the, the force the vote debate was was live, not to relitigate that. But AOC's response, and I credit her for even giving a response, was to say, listen, not everything is as it appears on the outside. In fact, we're we're using the power we have behind the scenes to make some changes and get put on committees and raise issues that you guys don't necessarily know about. But trust me, this is happening and it's going to work out. Trust me. Right. And and then we learned like two weeks later, she didn't even get put on the committee that she wanted to get put. So she did not do the thing that would have caused public pressure. 
that would have used the tools that she has. Because where does her power come from? It comes from the fact she has this gigantic social media presence. She's able to cause a fuss. She's able to make things uncomfortable. She's able to demand responses to things like, you know, hey, should we be able to ban, should we ban stock trading? What's that all about? So she doesn't do that. Instead, she's just she's been convinced by someone and by, I guess, the structure of the institution that actually her power lies in trying to play these behind the scenes games where she's easily frustrated and where she's never going to win. So somehow that seems to have occurred in, in some form or another with everybody who was, you know, in the squad. And, you know, I still see flashes of true courage, Corey Bush sleeping out on the steps during the, um, when the, the eviction moratorium was set to expire. I mean, that was really courageous and that shamed them into action. It worked, right? I see Ilhan Omar is routinely extraordinarily courageous on foreign policy um, in her comments on Israel, in spite of being smeared as anti-Semitic and all of these things. She's, she's very clear and she's very forceful. But in terms of them being really understanding where their power comes from and being able to use that in a way that's routinely effective, we just haven't seen that come to pass. Yeah. And oh, so my favorite squad member is Rashida Tlaib. I got a weakness for her. I, I, there's some, I've seen some interviews about her when she was a state representative. I think I, I like the way her mind works. Uh, there's, she's got the right qualities for me. Um, and and while we haven't seen it necessarily in the last two years, she's still the squad she's member. Been good on, she's been good on foreign policy at times, too. Um, and yeah, she was very, I remember watching video of her like at protests you know, being having to be dragged out and making people uncomfortable. And you can't help it but admire the courage of someone like that. I mean, Cori Bush, my goodness, like the yeah. life that she's led and the um, the way she has lived her values. And I even, I, I really sort of appreciated, you know, there's been an attempt to um, blame everything that's gone wrong from for the Democratic Party on the slogan, defund the police. And Cori just recently was like, no, I'm not backing off of it. Like, you know, I, I believe in this, I represent an area that, you know, this really matters to. And so I respect that she's not just going to buckle to what the, um, what the cons like beltway consensus has become about what has gone wrong for the democratic party. Yeah. Well, I'm in a town right now where the county 56% of the county budget goes to the police. So the idea that like we need to maybe think through what that means um, in terms of both public safety and you know the viability of our, and our tax dollars, I, I I think that's a conversation that we should have. If fifty percent of my property taxes are going to the police, then maybe that's maybe that's not where I want them to go. So um, I do want to um, consider one thing you brought up with respect to the California Medicare bill. Um, yeah. And the way that it was killed prior to the vote, yeah. right? So like that's a yeah. weird kind of, of frustration because you had a good bill nominally that we needed to make sure was dead before people got on record opposing it. And so that's another one of those times where like we generated the right policy, but then somehow it was quietly aborted before like it, it, it was realized. And like, what does that mean that like even the, the, the frustration process isn't public. So now. Yeah, that, 
that was really important and very significant. I should have seen it coming because it's they ran this exact same playbook the last time that there was a chance to have a vote on single payer. Um, it wasn't brought up for a vote. And so then there's no opportunity for accountability. There's no opportunity for activists to say, okay, these are the ones who are with us. You're good. These are the ones who are against us. We're going to primary your asses. We've got the vote to prove it. We're going to get in, someone in there who says they're going to support single payer. And maybe fingers crossed this time they actually <laughs> will. Um, because of course, Gavin Newsom was that guy who ran for governor promising he wanted the support of a nurses, nurses union, promising that he was going to support single payer, mocking politicians who would claim they support it. And then they'd find all kinds of excuses. And then he became that guy who <laughs> found all the excuses in the world. And he didn't just accidentally become that guy. He became that guy after he got like millions of dollars from health insurers and the Democratic Party got millions of dollars from health insurers. You know, one answer there is um, California has a lot more opportunity for direct democracy through ballot initiatives than uh, a lot of other states. So I think I I think having more um, options for direct democracy of that sort is probably one improvement that we should look at, although those those campaigns can be frustrated as well through money. But at least you have a little bit more of a shot than if you're, you know, even one more step removed, relying on these politicians who are self-interested. Another thing that I would say, and maybe this is personally self-interested, is um, part of that cycle of how you end up with unusual whales leading to the mainstream reporting, leading to the question from Pelosi, I do think is the fact that you had um, alternative media outlets such as ours that were highlighting that unusual whales reporting and, you know, demonstrating that there was a really interested audience to be had talking about these things. And I think that probably helped to pique the interest of the mainstream press seeing hey, they're doing this. They're getting a lot of eyeballs on it. People are clearly interested. There's energy here. Let's us pick up on this as well. Um, so I think that, I do think that having an alternative media ecosystem, pushing back on the idea of handing tech companies more power to censor because that can be wielded in a lot of ways that are very nefarious. I think that's an incredibly important objective right now. And then on the accountability front and on the shaming front, you also need those alternative media spaces to continue to like keep the eyeballs on who actually does what they say they're going to do and who doesn't because, you know, the legacy media is never going to be interested in making their allies uncomfortable at all. So listen, we don't particularly get access and we don't care about getting access. So for us, there's, it's a lot less uncomfortable. Um, to say, hey, this one showed up, this one didn't show up, this one ran on this, they ultimately did that, they weren't there for the vote, um, they took money from X or Y or Z person, then um, legacy legacy media journalists who depend on access for their careers. Yeah, well, uh, so about the petition process, um, the initiative process, I am from California, and I spent, you know, most of my life in California. And I will say that it's easily bought by money because you need paid signature gatherers in a state that big. And so in general, I think a good rule of thumb for voters in California is if you don't know what the initiative says, just vote no. <laughs> um, because like it's a great way for billionaires to get their preferred policy mm -hmm. on the ballot. So if you don't know what it says in, with the California initiative, like kill it. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this, like, you know, that's, that's my quick, Quick answer. The media ecosystem question is issue is is important 
for a few reasons. Mostly, I want Congress people to have to actually take hostile questions and give their reasoning. So anything that creates that sort of mandate, like in the Constitution, we have pretty much the uh, the mandate that you need some sort of uh, State of the Union address from time to time to talk to the people. I think we actually need a constitutional amendment with respect to forcing Congress people to debate. Like I, mm. I, I don't think you should be able to get through a, uh, an election cycle with a challenger without having to debate that challenger in front of uh, a neutral committee. Like I, I just- I'm down for that. Yeah, I, I just like Pelosi shouldn't be able to just duck debates. Right, like candidates shouldn't be able to just dock debates. And that is a problem for democracy because what happens then is that party leadership then becomes a faction over and above the citizens. And then the vote just becomes the means through which the party leadership legitimizes their power. Kind of like the Amazon vote down in Bessemer, Alabama. It's a vote that's not really a vote because it's not really contested. And so- yeah. So like, I, I think we need to talk about what kind of processes we need to institute. One of them, from my point of view, would be like, we need to mandate congressional debates. You don't get a free pass. Um, and I think that would be good for the nation in a certain way. But before I let you go, and I, I respect your time, I think it's very important, we're going to solve uh, populism real quick. And, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, we'll all right, so for the people at home, there's this idea that you can have a multiracial coalition of working class people between people who, who consider themselves left and people who consider themselves right, but who in general consider themselves workers and we could actually get good working class policy. I'm a little bit, um, I'm less, uh, I don't believe that's possible because I think that there are the, these other cultural pressures that uh, make working with large communities of Black people um, untenable for a lot of the populist right. And sharing power with large community of people you're used to owning makes that untenable. So I don't think you can actually, I think, I don't think you can have a multiracial working class coalition that's stable unless you change the way white people, especially on the right, think about, you know, family, church, and school. I'm not saying you have to take away their family, churches, and schools. I'm saying that if they have a conception of family that like says that men are the head of the household and women should be at home and all of that stuff, that's not going to be consistent with a lot of black life where like women work. And, or that's just not going to be consistent with like, I think a more progressive politics in general. Or, or if you have a conception of church, I mean, not church, uh, school, where you don't learn the history of either working class struggles or the history of racial yeah. struggles in the United States, that's not going to be consistent with a culture that that shares power with large groups of black people. So if you're going to have a real populist movement, I think you need to work at some of these cultural infrastructures that right now, as it stands, mutually reinforce each other to uphold a quality of politics that's not particularly good for America. And I don't know if you can have this working class coalition without doing that cultural work that says like, you need to rethink about how you think about the family. You need to rethink about how you think about schools and you need to rethink about how you think about church. And we could still, you can still keep your church, your family, your school. It's just going to be a little bit modified so that it, it's consistent with black freedom. I 
don't disagree with you, Irami. Having and I've been thinking about this because we've been having this conversation off and on for a couple years now at this point. I think we disagree maybe about where the starting point for that is. Um, because what I see is probably the most hopeful place in America right now in, you know, a potential any kind of working class politics that's good for the broad majority of Americans of all stripes is happening in the labor movement. And what I see is really hopeful there is like, you know, with the Starbucks workers, with the John Deere workers, with the teachers, you had people who started working together just because maybe it started as just like, you know, I want to make sure I get my pension. I want to make sure that, you know, we're getting decent wages. I want to make sure that we have some say over what our overtime is and what our life looks like in general and just some sort of like basic dignity and control over work but by having to work together on those issues then you have to engage with people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds and so you're less susceptible to these sort of like right-wing caricatures of what black people are and who they are and what they want and <laughs> those sorts of things you have to actually engage with people on a human level and it is my personal political view that that is the way that you start to reform the institutions that you're talking about. And I have never been a church going person, so I don't really have a lot of connectivity to the church and understanding of what needs to change there. But the school system, it's very clear to me. And there are, you know, obvious examples like the lack of the, the fact that there was an overt actual campaign to keep the teaching of labor struggles out of West Virginia schools and out of schools writ large across the country. I mean, this was, this is profoundly damaging, continues to be profoundly damaging. We're only now um, having the first generations, you know, that are post that came up post Cold War, starting to once again, believe in unions and believe in any sort of like community values. Um, and a resurgence in the view that solidarity is a thing that's good and that should be um, central to our politics or at least a, a core part of our politics. So I don't disagree with you that those cult cultural institutions are important and in need of reform. I think I disagree maybe about the starting point for how that process begins to happen. The other thing that I thought about that I wanted to tell you about and sort of workshop with you and see if you agree with me on this is, um, you know, we on Breaking Points, we trash the quote unquote culture war a lot. And so I was forcing myself to think through like, well, what do I actually mean when I say that? And I think that the definition that I'm working with is less about these sort of core institutional fights that actually are do matter for the future and more about these cheap sort of baiting tactics that are just meant to elicit a partisan response to strengthen one political party or the other, but are not actually consequential in terms of the direction that the country is going and moving forward towards. Yeah, I just, I just worry that it's going to keep happening. You're going to get this right populace who you think is on your side. Hey, come here, come and say hi to the people. My kid just got home. She's adorable. Come say hi to Chris. <laughs> And she's got Valentine's candy too, so she's very happy. Say hi, Crystal. Aww. Hi, Crystal. Hi, baby. How are you? She's gorgeous. <laughs> My baby turned five today, Army. Oh, you, you have a Valentine's baby. 
I'm a Valentine's baby, and her name is Ida Rose. So, Hello, Ida yeah. Rose. <laughs> so I do worry that um, that it's going to be a predictable, it's going to be a predictable tack, right? You think someone like Orin Cass, or you think like you know these some white populists will be with you, and then predictably they'll it'll like it'll turn, right? Because it, because it's going to turn out that the conception of the family, the conception of church, or the conception of school is going to be in some way not consistent with actually really sharing power across racial lines um, in a non-obvious way, but pretty predictably. And which is why, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, maybe, well, I'll think about it and we'll, we'll hash it out and point of entries are, are, maybe that is the discussion. Like, even if it, even if they're mutually exclusive visions, how do you actually address the other in a way that's helpful? And what order do, the order of operations might matter? And I think the order of operations is you go out the family and you go out the church, and then um, yeah, that'll open it up for a better working class politics. And other people think that if you go out the working class politics, then um, it'll be fine for the church and the family. So you know, we'll see, we'll see. I I do want to say okay I got I got three minutes before I I, I feel bad was Bernie stronger <laughs> in 2016 or 2020? I think Bernie was stronger in 2016. Um, I think he was sort of unencumbered by ex his own expectations of winning. He just really went in there like, I'm going to say the thing and I'm going to do the thing and didn't really think he could beat Hillary. I think she was a more formidable candidate, which is why in some ways he came closer in 2020. I mean, Hillary, there's a lot to say about her, but she did have a real machine and had, you know, some operational organizational competence. She continues to be incredibly influential in the Democratic Party. Biden was just a mess. Um, the only reason, I mean, he he relied on Obama coming in and the media cavalry and whatever. This man didn't even set foot in most of the states that he ended up winning. He was just like, you know, completely propped up, empty suit. Like, so I think, <laughs> true, yeah. <laughs> so I I think I think Bernie had a bit more clarity, force was clearly kind of the right person for the moment in 2016 than in 2020. You see this oftentimes, I feel like this with Andrew Yang, once Yang actually started like trying to win, that's when things started to kind of go sideways. Um, it's when they turn into pundits of like, how am I gonna you know, move this lever and let me craft my talking points to this particular group that um, things start to go astray. I don't know, what do you think? No, I, I agree, I agree. I, I think um, Bernie, tried to be too much of a candidate in 2020. And I do think we have to actually deal with, you know, America's Southern problem. Like, yeah. like, the, like Southern politics is going to kill the nation's politics because the nation's not, not Southern. And also uh, it's just, it's all the problems are concentrated here. We have like an enormous black population and a white population whose identity is both being in control at the state level and not sharing power with you know the enormous black population that is in the south and what that means like culture and then then in a black primary you have to understand that black people here aren't used to actually 
having their promises listened to and then enacted at the state level because our state level like, yeah. governance is pretty much the clan, right? So like you yeah. can promise anything, but we're not going to actually believe that you could go through with it because like we've never seen people go through with it. And so like there's going to be, there's just going to be so many justified and unjustified um, you know, problems with a progressive politics at a national level that inextricably has to run through the South. And, well, uh, and, and I don't, I don't really know. I think that's right. I, and it's also no accident that of course the South is famously hostile to union rights and that, you know, makes the job even more difficult. Um, we talked on Crystal Cal and friends with um, Felix from Chapo Trap House and he was made a point that got me thinking about how what we really needed before the Bernie, the first Bernie campaign was like 10 years of the kind of union energy and buildup that we're starting right now. Because, you know, you ask yourself, okay, the Bernie movement bet on we're gonna have all these voters who don't normally show up are going to show up. And that's what how we're going to win. That didn't happen. Well, why didn't it happen? Part of it is because this work hadn't been done. So people's identities were still, you know, wrapped up in other things. <laughs> there wasn't a, a, a class awareness and identity of like, you know, that can come from a union movement and understanding where you're actually situated in the American ecosystem and those sorts of bonds that can be forged. So I guess in that way, that's like the thing that I'm hopeful about right now is that that some of that work and some of that energy is happening. I do. And I've been saying this for a few years. A lot of people who do voter registration drives would be better off if they did union drives because, you know, yes. union members vote more than, yes. than like non-union members. So if you do the union drive, let's let the voter registration drive go, do the union registration drive, do the union drive, and that'll build up your ecosystem so that when you do the voter registration drive, uh, it'll actually matter. Because right now, like, so the 2018 election in, for governor in Georgia was actually pretty clear because Stacey Abrams is pretty much the best black anything. Like she was always, she's like, you, you talk, she's smarter than I've, I've sat with a, you know, Negro to Negro a few times, just mm -hmm. me and her talking and she's smarter than, she's just so smart, right? So you can just imagine that she was always just the best at everything. I mean, I don't agree with all of her policies and all that, but I don't want to play her in chess because she beat me. And I'm a guy who's used to being in rooms with smart people, but she's smarter than I. Um, uh, I mean, I would want to play her in chess, but like I would be, I, I would I'd get beaten. So, uh, so there you have like this outstanding black woman going against Brian Kemp. And while I haven't been in a room with Brian Kemp, like I've seen enough of Brian Kemp to know that he is just like an average dude. Mm -hmm. But since Republicans have so much of the cultural infrastructure on lock in Georgia, Kemp only has to go to a handful of churches. He has to go to a handful of institutions and he could just be the average dude and the institutions will do the work for, for him. Whereas uh, like Abrams actually has to build institutions and then her institutions are just kind of tailor-made for her. She's like, she's got like a fingerprint code on the Democratic Party in, in Georgia, <laughs> where like it'll only work for her. So it's not like you can just set up any black person. It is not like, like Stacey Abrams like built this machine to her specifications <laughs> on purpose. And uh, in a way that's not particularly good for democratic politics and black politics in general, but is good for her. Uh, but just the idea that there is no really, 
there's not like an infrastructure for the party that runs through non-political social organizations the way that there is an infrastructure on the Republican side that runs through non-political social uh, organizations such that any person, a Madison Cawthorn, can just kind of mm -hmm. like roll yeah. up and just say whatever and still kind of get yeah. moved through through the machine. Yeah, so building that very, infrastructure very is not going to be necessarily a political infrastructure. It's going to be a social infrastructure with political um, uh, tendencies and, and dispositions, I think. Yeah. And the problem for the Democratic Party is then they feel like they can't control it. And so they're <laughs> resistant to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I guess does the Republican Party have that kind of worry about focus on the family or, uh, or any of that, or the NRA? They're know. just so much more strategic. I don't know. They've got like so much more of a long-term view in mind. They're willing to suffer short-term setbacks in certain areas for long-term goals. And Democrats are always just like trying to win that day's cable news panel. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, so you look at the Republican story and it goes back to Goldwater. You look at the Democratic story and I don't know if it goes back to like anything more than the last election cycle. They're always kind of keep thinking about there's no, there's no 40 year plan. Mm, definitely not. If there is one, it's very, it's a very nefarious 40 year plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come talk to me and the people. Well, it is my pleasure. You do it all the time for us. So it was my, it was an honor to repay in a small way, the generosity that you always offer us with your time. All right. So if you like anything you've heard from Crystal, which I think you should, because she's very smart, and you should go over to Breaking Points, uh, put that in Google search, it'll come up. She's got a YouTube channel, so Breaking Points comes out with a show on every Monday, uh, Tuesday, and Thursday, and her and her yep. partner kind of go out and kind of work through these issues, and I think in a thoughtful way, and every now and then you might see me popping up on their show. And also she has a podcast, Crystal Kyle and Friends, that's available on all the regular podcast um venues i believe yes right? indeed good yep that you should listen to where her and her crystal uh, her and her uh, buddy chop it up with some of the best minds that you can pretty much talk to anyone you want to talk to can't you i wouldn't go that far uh there are a lot of people who would not return our calls but we are very lucky to get to talk to you and people like nina turner and dr cornell west and um this week we have on a guy this was also inspired by you who wrote a book about occupy wall street um, we're going to talk about the legacy of Occupy and what that has meant and what it has not meant in America. So, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. to. I like that show format is fun, too, because we get just longer time to sort of dive into things. Good. And, and by the way, I don't know if the people know this, but Crystal and I inspired a song. <laughs> and I don't like, look, you have a lot of guests and like a lot of them are much more fancy than I am. And by what right do I ever go on uh, your show and yap? But I've done something that I don't think too many of your other guests have done. Between our banter and our like just meeting of the minds, we inspired art. Uh, there was that a, is something a, special. Yeah, so there's a song out there. I'll put in the I'll put in the description of this video that was inspired about one of our, by one of our segments, and it was like a rock ballad, a rock funk ballad that the artist kind of like designed and produced and sang and put together inspired by the quality of our minds. That is a special thing. I think that shows the, the importance of our, you know, continued communion of the minds. I think so. Well, really like has any other, have any of the other guests, all the ones who come in in suits 
Have not to my awareness. Movie? Not to my knowledge. Nope, not to my knowledge. I don't read my mentions very often, so it is pos theoretically possible, but it has certainly not come across my radar, so to speak. Yeah, that we inspired a pop song, an anthem, if you will. Um, so uh, thank you for your time. By the way, if you like anything that I'm doing and you're just coming to see Crystal, but you're like you're saying you're staying to see me a little bit, you can go over to my channel on YouTube. Just put in Funky Academic in the bar or just go to funkyacademic.com. And, you know, all of this kind of takes a little bit of money. So you can kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month uh, to help me kind of do the thing that I'm doing. And I want to build in now that I figured out the software, I want to build in more interviews into my uh, kind of thing. I do. And I, you know, I, I spent the weekend and I figured out the software. And so like, I want to, I want to use it. So you go to funkyacademic.com, kick in five, 15 or $50 a month for me. I'll try to like seek out interesting people and there'll be more conversations like this. Now I will say that I am excited to the time where I don't have to learn new technical things and I can just see that <laughs> to my children. Um, Cause I remember when my, my parents just like seeded all things that had to do with wires and directions to me when I was like 10. And uh, so I'm, I'm very excited so for it to be able to see all things that have to do with learning technical things to my, my wonderful daughters. Uh, but for now, I learned the interview software and I want to use it. So you who are watching, help me use it and I'll get great people like Crystal. And I hope, you know, in, in a while you, you can come back. Will you come back in a few and later? Of course. I would love to. This is fun. And you guys absolutely should support Irami. He does incredible work. And I always, it's not a lie, I always get something out of... Um, what you have to say. I always, always gets my, my gears turning. So thank you, Irony. All right. We turn gears. Bye-bye.